0: Good morning. Welcome to Real Time with Ipelra, a podcast dedicated to HR topics in local government. I'm Megan Falera. And I'm Christina White. Thanks for joining us. Today we're talking about racial equity in local government. Research indicates that although we did not create it, a long history has led to systemic racism in government institutions. Since the civil rights movement, and more recently, in societal calls for change and demands for reform, many local governments have chosen to prioritize racial equity. But how do we start and where do we start? How do we begin to address something that has arguably been part of our culture for over 400 years? How does addressing this internally within our organization benefit our communities? With us today is the City of Evanston Deputy City Manager, Kimberly Richardson. Kim, how are you? Thank you for having me. I'm well. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. We are so excited to have you on the show. You presented this week uh, with two other colleagues for the Legacy Project on Allyship, and we we were blown away by your contributions that you made to that program and the work that you're doing in the City of Evanston. Can you tell us why this topic is of so much importance to you?
1: Oh, yes. You know, I have to tell you, this was a conversation or a topic that I never thought I would be having in my workplace, to be honest with you. It's just not something that when going through grad school, we discuss about racial inequities and how do we address that as, as public administrators. And throughout my career, you know, I saw it but didn't understand it and didn't have the context around how that work or how we as government um, can really help to alleviate some of the inequities. I mean, we see it around social justice with policing, but it goes so far beyond that. And so I really believe the pandemic, COVID-19, and the uprisings that occurred over the summer um, really I thought shone a light to how mm-hmm. fragile our our communities are when it comes to the inequities and especially COVID and the pandemic really exposed that with unemployment, health inequities, the um, students having to re- work remotely and not having the tools to be able to do so, our frontline workers and so forth. And the stopgap really is the safety net really at some, at the end of the day, it's government. And recognizing how does that work at the very local level has been very interesting. And so for me, this work really is true to why I wanted to go into local government to begin with, to really have an impact, direct impact to, um, in my community and to those I serve. And so, you know, when this conversation started in Evanston many years ago, it was very, I was very unaware of it. I didn't understand it. I did not know how to connect the dots, but over the course of the last year and a half to two years, I really have immersed myself in the work, understanding around why we use the word racial and not social or just equity by itself. And so Mm -hmm. that is important. And I think it's going to take a lot more effort than just my voice, but a collective voice within our governments, there to really um, advance this work. You, you know, uh,
0: thank you. I also think it's interesting. I think a lot of us have been pointing to, as you mentioned, the evidence of the over the summer, and I think specifically, you're you're likely referencing the. Um, killing of George Floyd. I know others have pointed back to um, the events that took place in Ferguson, Missouri. You know, we can go back further to the civil rights movement. I'm, I'm taking this class at Northwestern right now. It's brought us back to the colonial period. I, I feel like we're living in a Spike Lee movie, that these tensions have just been simmering under the surface, and all it takes is a global pandemic or, or whatever for them to, to, to rise to the surface. So, what can you explain what is meant by the term racial equity what does that mean
1: sure and i just want to know i just want to also make a note that as city government and particularly evanston um we must take a new approach to governance that elevates our purpose and mission to rebuild the public's trust a lot of that Mm -hmm. is around what racial equity is it's about bringing the community into the process and the connections to each other so it's 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 very critical um, acknowledge that prior policies and practices and procedures have institutionally marginalized both internal employees, our internal community, which is our employees, as well as our external community, which is our residents. Um, And so we have to acknowledge that first before we can even delve into what terms are defined as, um, because that is something we struggle with. And it's something that we have to be able to um, acknowledge. So you asked a question um, around what is racial equity, and how I defined it is actually a definition that has been defined um, by others. This is not an Evanston definition. Um, Racial equity is looked upon as both an outcome and a process. As an outcome, we achieve racial equity when race no longer determines one's socioeconomic outcomes, such as the employment, life expectancy, um, health indicators, and so forth, education, attainment. It's when everyone has what they need to thrive, no matter where they are in their lives. And as a process, we apply racial equity when those most impacted by structural uh, racial inequity are meaningfully involved in the creation and implementation of institutional policies and practices that impact their lives. So a good example of that would be we were seeing uh, you know our community increasing in our in Evanston of the Latinx population and not all Latinx population are non-native English speakers but those who are have the inability to really communicate and interact with us as government. And so how do we better address using language access as a way to build relationships in the community so that they're a part of the process? Just think about going to a city council meeting and you're not able to understand anything that's being said and decisions that are being made on a, on a, you know, bi-monthly basis. That's a part of our, population, part of our community. They are not able to engage us because we, don't, we have a language access barrier. And so how do we develop internally a system in place to allow individuals to be a part of the conversation that may not be native speaking English um, individuals? And so we talk about racial equity, and I know race is something as a society. It's very still a difficult conversation. I think we've Made a lot of strides in the last um, year to be able to start, you know, being able to use the word race. But I also want you to understand that racial equity is not race exclusive. And so we look at race because that is the leading indicator to one's abilities to be um, able to succeed in this in our society in America. But we recognize that there is ableism, there is sexism, there is other isms that we acknowledge. But we also recognize there's people of color that are also in those other uh, populations as well. And those barriers are just as high. I look at a gentleman who is, in a, um, who is in a wheelchair. And he did not have ability. He was on a committee. And he was not able to make the committees all the time because of the time of which the committees were meeting. The committees met on an evening. Um, after hours, like most meetings, so be after um, dinner, after uh, work hours. But because his his disability, he was not able to get on the bus back home, and so he literally could not come. He literally could come to the meetings, but could not make it uh, come uh, or return home because his only mode of transportation was public transportation. So we had, uh, so that group made a conscious decision, like we're going to change the structure of our meeting when they were in person to allow for our member to be able to participate and be able to leave in a way, in a timely manner where um, they were not missing the conversation. And those are things that we have to be cognizant of. We have to be mindful and be comfortable with making those changes, not to make a person feel as if they're excluded, but included. And so by changing just by moving the meeting uh, you know an hour earlier made such a difference in how people participate. Now think about that as a systematic thing. If we would look how we are structure our boards and commissions, who are we missing at the table who are usually part of the community that are not heard from? Those are usually are parents who are single parents who have child care you know issues or may need to have child care. Those are people who are working. You know, hours that does not allow for them to like just get off whenever they're able to jump on a Zoom call. Those are individuals who don't have the the means to to assess. You know, at, in the evening, public transportation we take for granted Uber and other services like that, but not everyone has that um, that ability to have access to it. So those are things that we, as a, as a government entity, when we're asking for community participation we have to look at a little bit more deeper, who are we really engaging in those um, participatory process because we aren't set up to engage everyone. We're only set up to engage those who are actually wanting to be engaged.
0: Kim, I think that's, uh, I want to go back to the example you gave about the Latinx members of the community and them not being able to literally participate in city council meetings because they can't communicate and it's just it's interesting to me that that local government is kind of the last to embrace this we we remember the Americans with Disabilities Act and that came out and and it required us to lower the threshold and cut the curbs and have all of these accommodations so that people could physically get into places. I remember the Help America Vote Act where all of a sudden ballots needed to be created in different languages. We needed to have um, sip and puff devices for people who were not able to um, physically use their limbs to push a button or write something down. So we've made these accommodations for other, other things at the federal level but not at the municipal level. And I can tell you the
1: reason for that is cost. I mean, let's just be honest, we've been starving, the local governments have been starving for funding for many years. And, you know, depending on the size of the community and how they're able to, um, you know, fund their budgets, a lot of it's based on property taxes. And so over time, you know, when you had that inf- a fusion of federal funding to help support some programs, those are gone, I mean, for the most part. You may get a grant here or there, but nothing's sustainable. And so you have to really begin to look at what can we do with the resources we have and then also say, well, what is a priority for us? So if we really want community members to have access to their government, it must be a priority and we must say we're going to fund, uh, allocate some funding to support that effort. And it can't be something that is people know when it's, it's not genuine, when it's not a real effort, right? It's put a flyer in Spanish, but yet there's no translators, the interpreters there to be able to translate. Okay, that's great. You have a, fly, a flyer in Spanish, but once I'm in that space, I no longer can still communicate. You know, so those are things that you have to fund and you have to be strategic about. And we also have to be mindful that even if we are lucky to have bilingual employees, how are we, how we're we accessing their abilities and services, ensuring that they too are being, you know, allocated for, or acknowledged for that effort, because it shouldn't just be, oh, you are bilingual, you can just do this. It's a level of, of also, of understanding of a level that you need to be as a um, translator, you know, as one to... Interpret. There's actual certifications for that, so we have to be more uh, more aware and, and realistic to how we want to approach it. But the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that we aren't doing the work initially, and then we have to communicate. So another principle, it's like uh, it, our own way of community organizing in a sense. Principles. If you go into the community and have conversations, one-on-one conversations to me have been the most useful because people feel with much ease when they're able to have conversations in small groups or one-on-one with an individual who hears them and listens. And so that is a part of the process is engaging the community, getting their feedback, and then within that feedback, they're able to provide us with some directives that can help us be able to craft either a policy or some guidelines or some action items to be able to make sure that what they're asking for is actually being what is actually are the actions that we're taking. And sometimes we don't ask, we just assume. And that's the problem that I seem to have come across from time to time.
0: So Kim, can you tell me when this became a priority for Evanston?
1: Well, it's twofold. So i I've been with Evanston since since February of 2016. And I will say when I arrived, they were already talking about equity. Um, They had staff members at the time dedicated to investing and learning more about what equity means, how that's integrated. But also they had a number of community members who were pushing the city towards that. Um, Eventually, Mm -hmm. the city... uh, prioritize equity, and I'm saying equity because at the time we were not saying racial equity, we were still saying equity, um, and designated uh, and and decided to um, designate an employee. So we ended up um, hiring an employee who was going to be our equity officer. And they were supposed to move us forward around this work. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think that approach helped us a little bit because we hadn't bought in as an organization really around what equity really meant as an organization and how we were going to move forward. So what we ended up doing is a lot of conversations and you know, diversity training, uh, implicit-explicit bias training, microaggression training, which is needed. And I'm going to say, everyone needs to have that space. We need to have that awareness. Cultural awareness is so important um, for all of us to participate in. However, what I noticed is that we weren't getting to the the actual core issue, which was our policies and procedures. And that is a different level of engagement that we weren't prepared for yet. And so, um, unfortunately, our equity officer um, decided to move on and it kind of fell in my lap. (laughs) And those things happen, right? And I initially was like, okay, i was just hire this position But then once I recognized, and actually we did, um, I kind of used a racial equity, um, we'll call REIA, which is Racial Equity Impact Analysis. Um, Mm -hmm. We did that for our social services uh, review, which was in itself a very interesting um, conversation. So our, our, our then former manager, city manager, Uh, had at a city council meeting said, Kimberly, you're going to be doing a a social service review of our social services due to some budgetary concerns. And I was going to come back to city council within 90 days to give them my recommendations. Well, I kind of knew in the back of my head, okay, that's not what I'm hearing the community saying is what they want. (laughs) They want to be heard. They're angry. They're upset about some decision points that were going to possibly be made. And I started looking around like, what can I use? What tools can I use? Should I use um I remember going back to high uh, uh graduate school and, and doing program evaluations and all these other things. And so at the time I asked our equity officer, you know, what is what's with this racial equity thing? Can I like add some questions in there so I can, you know, add some racial equity? And and I didn't understand what she said, racial equity isn't a thing and it's not a checkbox. It's the process, but no one knew how to do the process, and so that is when I luckily came across. And it's just by circumstance—really, it was just by chance. Like I went to some event and I was just telling someone about. I really want to know more about this racial equity thing. I don't know what that is. I don't understand how that works, and I—I I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. And that's when I was get—I was connected to. uh uh, professor at UIC who really had been in this work. And so through that individual's guidance and and help, we actually did a racial equity analysis for our social services. And can I tell you, that set the city up for success for COVID-19 response, not recognizing it at the time. And it really showed when we listened to the community and, and invest the funding that we needed into our health and human services department, which we weren't doing, we actually saw results that benefit those individuals. Standing up a food pantry in less than a week's time, you know, to respond to COVID, having wraparound services because we are a full-service health department and, and we also have a human um, services division as part of that. Them working, co- um, connecting them together, and having them work in hand in hand under one umbrella really was significant in our response. So. That was all because we did an REIA. And that was not the purpose of that REIA. And when it was time to go to the city council with our recommendations, that was the first time in my tenure working for Evanston that we didn't have community members upset with what we were putting forward. In fact, they were calling and saying, this is exactly what we wanted. Thank you for hearing us. So it works if done and understand properly and understanding how to use the tools that are given to really fit the organization needs. And so that's where we're at today in the organization where I thought it's important how do I expand this beyond one person? Because what I recognize is if I left, if our equity officer left, which eventually that individual did, no one's in the organization able to move this forward and it just dies or it's just gonna be sitting there and it's never going to have the impact it's needed to have in order to have the results we all wanted to um, come from it. And so that's when we decided really, I decided that we need to create an internal committee of staff from every department that can look at policies and learn how to look at policies and procedures with a racial equity lens and understand what that means mm-hmm. and how then to use and create toolkits. I use that term, but it's a toolkit that. They can answer <laughs> questions in a way that um, will get the result that we're trying to achieve. And so they, it's a 12 month, really, it's a 12 month program of learning, doing, action model, and piloting a lot of different aspects of it and then reporting what works and what doesn't. And so this is our first year doing this program, and we've been now in month three of uh, going into month of the program. And so it's it's very interesting to get the perspective because I get a lot of skepticism from our organization saying, yeah, Kim, this is great, but, you know, I haven't seen, you know, we've done all these types of programs in the past. And the last thing I need to see is we add something new. It's It's the hot item of the moment. And then down the road, you know, there's no more interest or prioritizing towards it and it goes away. And I have to change that culture. And it's like, there's a culture shifting that has to occur internally in order for the external to really be uh, successful. And so it's really trying to work on our internal structures and our institutional um, institutionalized um, racism that we have all played a part in supporting internally that we don't think about. Like when we use the term, Finding the right fit. Well, what is the right fit if you have a bias and you don't recognize those biases? So, how do we ensure our hiring practices are making are inclusive enough so that we have not telling someone that your biases is going to be eliminated, but that you have a counter in there to make sure that we're not missing something that um, that one would miss if you just have everyone in there with the same mindset. And so having those conversations and changing those institutional structures our promotional systems how do we promote people how are we you know we we love having sameness and sameness is equality and equality is great in certain places but we recognize also that equality has caused a lot of harm in that those who benefit the most typically in those in those situations when it comes to promotion are are white and, and typically male, and, and why is that? So digging deeper into that, what is it the structures that we've set up to not give people who are of color or women those opportunities, or they may not think they have those opportunities because of how we may have our process internally set up. So it's, it's going a little deep, and it's a lot of change, and you have to get the buy-in from both the city council, the city manager, and the department heads. And the staff, it's a lot of having, it's truly community organizing. And I never knew that I would be doing community organizing internally <laughs> as a job. But that's really what it's
2: Right. You know, we chuckled a little bit, Kim, when you talked about a toolkit, because offline, you know, we kind of talked about the fact that um, you're not a, a huge fan of the idea of toolkits. And I think especially when it comes to this type of um I don't even want to call it an initiative because that makes it sound like something short term, but when you're talking about dealing with racial equity and really looking at internal and external factors of equity in your, in your particular community um, it isn't a one size fits all model. And we've talked about that in previous podcasts uh, on on various topics that, you know, communities are all very unique in their own way. And you, and um, you really have to look at what's going on internally in the organization and talking to the community to figure out, are there, are there issues? Are there barriers? Are there things that we need to address? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, a one size fits all model or, or a toolkit that kind of leads you through a standard process of sharing what another community did or taking what another community did and sort of applying mm-hmm. it to your community probably won't work with this mm-hmm. type of thing.
1: I guess. Thank you, Christina. And also, I want to say that, you know, I'm speaking from an organization Evanston is not the typical Midwest community in Illinois, right? We recognize that as a society, they're very engaged, mm-hmm. overly engaged at times, but they're engaged community electorate. And and I and I recognize that not every community looks like that. I've worked in communities previously where it, the community makeup did not reflect the internal organization or an internal organization did reflect the community um, makeup. And so even in those situations when you may have um, homo- homogenous organization where most people are pretty much uh, racial on racial lines or gender pretty similar, how do you bring in diversity into that organization? You know, if and that's a hard part. It's like it's around the conversation that I have about you know we call ourselves a welcoming city. How do we become a welcoming organization? Because when someone is brought in who is talented skill, but they're of color. and But yet when they're in the organization, they don't thrive in the way that we see other counterparts. Why is that? And that has to be a conversation about what internal structures do we have that that does not create a, a culture of belonging, but a culture of othering. And so that to me is important. Like we talk a lot about diversing the, diversifying the workplace. But I'm always saying, like, what does that mean? And especially as a woman, a Black woman, who has worked in organizations where I represented probably less than 1% of the population, or that I represented the population, but the organization did not reflect that. And it was very difficult. It's a difficult environment to work in because we don't have those difficult conversations of how do we make people feel belonging and heard. And and, and, and that's something that has to change. And I think that's just not a government issue. That's across all sectors of our workforce. But for us, it's it's even more important because we're here to engage the community. And so if we can't engage our internal community and have these conversations internally about the barriers that we put up in our organization, how in the heck are we going to have that externally? so it's so important that we we begin that work and i've actually without naming the other municipality i happened to uh saw a review there um they did a uh some uh, a dni kind of like um review and audit and just what they said acknowledge of what they needed to do as an organization because understanding that they're like 86 percent their um, workforce was 8% white. And it's like, wow. They recognize, yeah, even though that may be more reflective of the community, it's still not where we want to be. And as an organization, we want to be welcoming and them taking the next steps to try to really examine that and how they can be um, able to make their staff who aren't part of that 86% feel welcomed and belonged and heard is something that they recognize they wanted to to do as well. So it's just not an Evanston issue and it's not calling out anyone. It's nothing anyone has done. It's all about systems that have been in place. Like you mentioned, Megan, 400 years. I mean, I, I'm totally about to do a a pop culture reference, but I was watching this morning um, this TV show called the real world homecoming and the original (laughs) cast of the real world. And I remember watching that when I was like a teenager, probably 10, I was not a teenager yet, but I was younger than that. But I remember how I it clicked with me this morning. That television show totally informed how I look at the world today because of the diversity that I mm-hmm. saw, the conversations that I saw at such a young age that was so impressive. So just imagine the conversations our children and nephews and nieces and friends and family are having and seeing today and how that's going to inform them in years to come when they're in our shoes and doing our work. So I just know that it's going to, we we are a society that are very resilient. We, We are a society that do love one another and we do, we are patriotic and we want a better society for everyone. We want our climate to be you know, healed so we can, our earth to be healed. So we want to have good climate policies. We want people to have good mental health access and health access overall. We all want that. And so how do we do that and work together? So it's just the same. And as government, local, state, federal, we all want to do this work because we want to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem.
0: kim wow you you've you've said a lot in a short amount of time here and and unfortunately that's all the time we have for our show today, but there is a lot more conversation that needs to be had on this topic. We put together talking points whenever we do the show i we didn't even scratch the surface on all the all the things we wanted to talk about today um but I want to thank you for joining us and if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you or they'd like more information on the REIA. <laughs> work that you've done or anything like that, how can, how can people get in touch I'm with I'm always
1: at work, Megan. No. Okay. <laughs> no <laughs> seriously, any time, people can reach me by email, Richardson at cityofevanston.org. I'm, I'm pretty responsive. I, I try my hardest. Or um, Reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn if you want to reach out to me as well on LinkedIn. Um, I'm trying to do better on my LinkedIn account after that allyship uh, <laughs> I was like, "Oh, I need to, re- I need to update my, my my LinkedIn profile, apparently, because that's all oh, outdated." So. Three,
0: three <laughs> jobs ago. That's
1: so, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, I'm here. I love to talk. I like to learn. I'm I'm always engaged in trying to like learn more about this and how I can do and help and be a better public administrator. I just love being in this profession. It's one of my. Dream jobs to have a career mm-hmm. to do something that's very highly a high touch point job, but a very rewarding job at that. So thank you again for the two of you inviting me to have this conversation, and I look forward to coming back if there's nothing to update you on.
2: And Ken, before
1: before uh, Megan fantastic. wraps this up,
2: we can't we mentioned LinkedIn, so we can't wrap up without um, acknowledging that ICMA recognized you as a woman to know recently. Um, so that was also very exciting.
1: It's nice yeah. to see
2: people getting recognized that we know and you know that you're making an impact in this local government world that we all live in. So great awesome. job and congratulations on that.
1: Thank you. Thank you and mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And yeah. I've, I would not have done it without the support of individuals like you two, the Legacy Project, I am a ILCMA. I mean, I have such a great network of support of, organ- of our colleagues and professional organizations that have really lifted me up through this. So I'm just very, uh, very honored to have been recognized and I will continue to do the work that I love.
0: And, and that brings me to the public broadcasting announcement I make every week. Um, none of this would be possible without listeners like you. We're listening. If you have anything to say, send us a recorded voice message we can play or join us on a future podcast. Connect with us through the website at www.ipelra.org and of course on Twitter at ipelra. Support Ipelra by becoming a member. We are dedicated to providing training and resources to HR and labor professionals from local government. Join us next time as we discuss safety sensitive positions with Yvette Heinzelman from Clark Baird Smith. And I'm Megan Solera. And this has been Real Time with iPowra. Thank you so much.